Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Welcome to our first ever live webinar. It's a collaborative webinar. We are actually collaborating with uh, Tricellus Life Sciences and the Ocular Melanoma Foundation. I'm your host, Danae Peterson from the I Believe podcast. First, we're going to actually be hearing from three experts from the Perio One clinical trial. So the pressure-enabled regional immuno-oncology or Perio one clinical trial is actually studying a new investigational drug, SD-101, delivered intravascularly by TriNav infusion system using the pressure-enabled drug delivery, or PEDD, method of administration. The study is currently evaluating if this platform approach can improve the performance of systemic checkpoint inhibitors in treating patients with uveal melanoma, liver metastases, by overcoming two major challenges in treatment immunoresponse suppression, and ineffective drug delivery. So first up, we're actually going to be hearing from Dr. Richard D. Carvajal, MD, Associate Professor of Medicine, Director, Experimental Therapeutics, Director of the Melanoma Service at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And he is an investigator on the Perio-1 clinical trial. Dr. Carvajal will discuss the success, challenges, and emerging strategies in the treatment of metastatic uveal melanoma. Following his presentation, Dr. Stephen C. Katz, MD, FACS, Chief Medical Officer of Trisalis Life Sciences, will discuss barriers to immunotherapy, success in uveal melanoma, liver metastases. And to conclude, we're going to hear from Dr. Joshua L. Weintraub. He is an MD, the Executive Vice Chairman, Department of Radiology, and the Chief of the Division of Vascular and Interventional Radiology at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And he's going to be speaking to us about the pressure-enabled regional immuno-oncology or the PERIO-1 clinical trial for adults with uveal melanoma liver metastases. Joining us to discuss the Tri-Salus Life Sciences PERIO-1 clinical trial uh, eligibility criteria is Ashley Moody, and she is, is a nurse and a clinical research and immunotherapy project manager. So she'll be available at the end to answer those logistical questions surrounding the trial involvement like eligibility, trial flow, treatment logistics, and travel reimbursement, if applicable. And then you can follow the presentation towards the end so that we can get those live questions. So Dr. Carvajal, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you. Danae, thank you so much. And I'd like to thank Acura Insight, the Ocular Melanoma Foundation. Um, I believe everyone in, in, in helping put this together. So yeah, thank you for being here. Oh, no, my pleasure. And I, I have to say, I, I really enjoy, I think these, these sorts of forums are so important because um, I think as, as a clinician, it's, you know, it's, it's so important to be able to help educate um, and, and guide patients, not just patients of, you know, ours at Columbia, but, but everywhere. So um, I do think that this is, this is really, really important. One thing that I like to highlight when I talk is, is um, you know, one, how, how important collaboration is uh, in all fields. Um, but particularly when we're dealing with rare and difficult to treat cancers like this. Um, and, and thankfully, the uveal melanoma field is extremely collaborative. Um, and there's, there's strong working relationships between um, the clinicians and patient advocacy groups, um, you know, such as this one here. Um, there's strong um, uh, collabor collaborative, collaborative relationships between physicians. Um, and uh, there's strong collaborative relationships between us uh, and pharma. And, and this is all really, really important to help um, make sure that we're advancing the field, um, finding new treatments, and hopefully reaching a cure for patients with disease as quickly as possible, right? We can't do that fast enough. Um, so in 10 to 15 minutes, what I wanna talk about is a, a little bit about the successes we've had in how we are able to treat patients with uveal melanoma, some of the challenges and emerging strategies. Listed here are um, my disclosures. 
And I want to start off by just kind of highlighting where we are in the field of cutaneous melanoma. And so if you look at the left hand, oh, I'm sorry. If you look here at the left hand, what I just highlight is the number of FDA approved therapies we have for, for cutaneous melanoma. And it was really in 2011 when we had the first approval for ipilimumab, the anti-CTLA-4 antibody and, and targeted therapies like femorafenib that we really started to be able to push our ability to, to meaningfully improve outcomes for our patients. Um, and in cutaneous melanoma, we're now able to cure 50% of patients with advanced disease, right? We still have a long ways to go, but that's, that's a far cry from where we were in 2004, 2005. And so now we have 15 approved therapies for patients with advanced cutaneous melanoma. Um, for uveal melanoma, thankfully, just in January, we have our first approved therapy. I think everyone in this audience knows about Tebentoplast. Um, and my hope is that that rapid improvement in outcomes that we saw for cutaneous melanoma, which really began with that first approval for um, ipilimumab, my hope is that this Tebentoplast approval will be kind of the start of an acceleration for this field as well, for patients who are dealing with this disease. Don't want to spend too much time on Tebentoplast, but you know, really, this is a huge deal. It's practice changing for us, uh, for, for patients, family members, clinicians. We finally have something that we can do that we know meaningfully improves patients' outcomes. Uh, and Tebentafus is the first treatment we have been able to identify that meaningfully improves survival. This is practice changing. Again, this was approved in the US in January. And actually, just earlier this week, it was approved in Europe. Okay. Um, now, Although we have an approved therapy, um, there is still a lot of work we have to do. In the way of background, I think everyone here knows what is, what is uveal melanoma. It's a, it's a rare type of uveal melanoma. It's biologically, clinically distinct from, from cutaneous disease. Um, and you know, although the treatments of primary disease are quite good, uh, after radiation therapy, after nucleation, about half of patients will still develop metastatic recurrence. Uh, and what's, what's a little bit unique about this disease is when it comes back, it likes to go to the liver, okay? Which is a particular challenge because if you look across all cancers, whether it be um, colon cancer, pancreatic cancers, skin melanoma, when it goes to the liver, for some reason, it, it tends to be harder to treat, right? And so I think as we think about developing new therapies, specifically for uveal melanoma, we have to better understand what's going on in the liver uh, that's making cancer there so difficult to treat. So we do have Tebentafus approved, but we don't have therapies um, with proven efficacy in patients who are not eligible for Tebentafus, right, who are not HLA AO201 positive, which is about 50 to 60% of patients, and for patients whose cancer grows despite treatment with Tebentafus. Now, for those patients outside of clinical trials, you know, a lot of us will still try the immunotherapies that we typically use for cutaneous melanoma, the anti-PD-1 antibodies like Optiva or Keytruda. Um, and, and they can work. You know, for instance, here's one patient uh, with metastatic disease. And this is um, about a year or so after treatment of the primary melanoma. She developed low volume disease, so a small lesion there in the liver, a small lesion there in the lung, small lesion there in the bone, a little bit of soft tissue disease there. And this patient was treated with pembrolizumab, the anti-PD-1 antibody. You can see after about a year or so of therapy, the liver lesion basically went away, the lung lesion basically went away, um, the bone lesion stabilized. Um, and so we can occasionally get responses with um, these sorts of therapies, um, but overall in the general population, unfortunately, it's just, it's just uncommon. Um, and you know, this just shows you a, a bunch of the studies and series that we've done uh, looking at patients with uveal melanoma treated with anti-CTLA-4 antibodies like ipilimumab or tremolimumab, um, or patients treated with the anti-PD-1 or anti-PDL-1 antibodies. And what you can see is uh, the likelihood of major tumor shrinkage, which we call response rate here, is generally low across these studies and series. So, you know, we say the likelihood of major shrinkage is, is you know, at, at best on the order of five to 10%. Um, this here shows you how long the cancer is controlled on these therapies. You can see it's just way too short. We're talking four months at best. Now in cutaneous melanoma, we will frequently combine the anti-CTLA-4 antibody, ipilimumab 
with uh, an anti-PD-1 antibody. And when we do this sort of combination therapy in skin melanoma, that's what's giving us that very high um, likelihood of shrinking the tumor of 50 to 60%. Um, and that's a therapy with which we're able to achieve that cure in about 50% of patients. Uh, again, now this can work in, in, in folks with advanced uveal melanoma. And this is another patient of mine, a 52-year-old female uh, who, um, uh, this is the PET scan. You can see all those white spots are spots of cancer. And we treated her with ipilimumab and ebolimab. And you can see after four months of therapy, uh, most of those spots have disappeared. And after 10 months, uh, the PET scan is, is basically normal. And so that combination therapy can work. Um, but, you know, again, the outcomes are not as good with this sort of immunotherapy as what we see with cutaneous melanoma. Okay, and so these are the studies and series in, in patients with uveal melanoma treated with that aggressive combination of immunotherapy. And here, at best, we're talking about a response rate on the order of 15, you know, maybe up to 18%. Um, but that duration of disease control, that progression-free survival is, is still way too short. And so kind of, you know, bottom line here in terms of for patients who are not eligible for Tebentafus, um, who are not going to treat on a clinical trial, we, we do tend to recommend combined checkpoint inhibition. Numerically, the outcomes seem to be better. Um, but, um, you know, to me, the outcomes are still, still insufficient. So it's kind of a signal, um, but we have to somehow get this to work better. When we talk about, you know, why does, why does checkpoint blockade not work as well? Um, you know, there are a bunch of hypotheses and reasons why this might be the case. Um, if you look at the cancers that respond very well to these immunotherapies, they tend to have a lot of mutations, a lot of abnormalities that the immune system can recognize and attack. And so this is a plot here, you know, which shows you that, for instance, in skin melanoma, there are a lot of mutations, which is shown over here, and the response rate's really high. If you look at uveal melanoma, it has very, very few mutations. So, you know, that tumor does not have a huge number of changes that the immune system can take advantage of to recognize an attack. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is we know that tumors that express um, a lot of what we call this PDL1 um, protein tend to respond better to these immunotherapies. And if you look at uveal melanoma, about 5% of cases will have high levels of expression of that PDL1 protein versus if you look at skin melanoma, it's about 26%. Now, another thing that um, I'd like to highlight is that it may be that we need to start looking at cancer um, at each organ site to see if there are differences. And I, I just highlight here, even in cutaneous melanoma, if you look at cutaneous melanoma that goes to the liver, um, the expression of PDL1 seems to be a little bit lower. And I just bring that up because I think we have to start thinking about um, differences in each organ. Um, Right, we may have to um, attack cancer in different organs a little bit differently. Um, this is a little bit of a study. Uh, this is a study that was looking at some of the immune cells, mostly in uveal melanoma in the liver. Uh, and, and what this shows you here is these CD3 and CD4 and CD8 cells are these are your T cells, the immune cells that are um, supposed to be attacking the cancer. And what this just shows you is that in uveal melanoma in the liver. Um, there aren't that many of them, and they tend to be um, kind of on the rim of the tumor. They're not able to infiltrate the tumor. Whereas um, if you look at the tumors and you look at a different type of immune cell, which are these tumor-associated macrophages, um, there are actually more of those than those T cells, and they tend to be what we call these bad macrophages or these immunosuppressive macrophages that um, don't allow um, the immune system to kill the cancer, right? And why do I bring this up? It's just, again, we need to understand what's going on in the cancer, in the liver, figure out how to optimize that immune kind of milieu um, so that our available therapies can work better. Now, you know, all the treatments that we're given, that we're giving, we're, we're giving with the intent to kill cancer. That's the goal. Um, but the treatments that we give can also change the way the immune system functions. It can change what we call the tumor microenvironment. Uh, and, and this is um, from a patient who was treated with Tebentafus, where we did a tumor biopsy of the liver at baseline, and then after treatment. 
And what you can see here is that after treatment, and this is actually at the time of the cancer growth, um, there are more of those CD8 immune cells there, which should be a good thing. Um, there's more PDL1 expression, right, which suggests that you might be able to treat the patient with a PD1 antibody and they might respond better. Um, there's more of this GP100 antigen, um, no real changes in something called MHC class one. And why do I bring that up? I bring that up because um, the therapies we give can also change the tumor microenvironment, which may affect how subsequent therapies work. Okay, and so if we go back to this patient who responded really well to ivalimumab and nivolumab, and we look back at what her prior therapies were, um, this, this um, patient was treated with ipilimumab, the anti-CTLA-4 antibody, and then it stopped working. Then she was treated with pembrolizumab and radioembolization for a while, did okay for a while, but then it stopped working. Then went on to bentafusp and had that for 20 months. And then after that, uh, we opted to retreat her basically with the same immunotherapies that she had before, but it stopped working, right? Uh, and even though those therapies stopped working before, when we retreated her after the patient had dementifusp, after some of those changes in the liver microenvironment were achieved, she achieved this um, really remarkable response. And so just to kind of summarize my piece, um, one, the, the clinical responses that we see with dementifusp, it's, it's a you know it's, it's a proven concept. Immunotherapy can work in this disease, but we just have to use the right type of immunotherapy. Um, <clears throat> to really optimize treatment, we have to address the barriers to effective immunotherapy, right? And those barriers may be, um, you know, innate characteristics of the cancer. Uh, it might be innate characteristics of the organ in which it's growing, like the liver. Um, and we do have to address the immune microenvironment, you know, you know where the cancer is growing. Is that microenvironment um, susceptible to kind of the treatments that we have. And three, alteration of the immune microenvironment can be achieved. That is, you know, the treatments that we have can affect the tumor, it can affect the immune system, it can affect the tumor microenvironment. Uh, and we have to take all of that into account when figuring out how to combine therapies, how to sequence therapies. Um, and then finally, the development of new and effective combinatorial and sequential therapies remain of high priority. And I just want to kind of leave the audience with this slide. Um, you know, when I, when I meet patients, I, I like to um, um, give them buckets of therapy. You know, how, how are we thinking about the strategies that we might, um, might pursue? Um, and one is certainly because this is a disease that likes to go to the liver, we have to strongly consider these what we call regional therapies, um, you know, treatments directly into the liver. Two, um, we can certainly consider systemic therapies oral medications, IV medications. Um, but these are not mutually exclusive. We can certainly pursue concurrent strategies. You know, let's treat the liver and administer systemic therapy in a way that makes sense. And so with that, I think I'll, I'll end there. I'm looking forward to answering any questions. And um, I'd like to turn it over to, uh, to Dr. Katz from Trisalis. Thank you very much, Dr. Carbajal. And I also want to thank the Ocular Melanoma Foundation um, and Cure Insight for putting this together and allowing us to speak to this group. So when we think about all of the wonderful things that immunotherapy has done uh, for so many diseases, including cutaneous melanoma, uh, we also have to think about the patients that immunotherapy hasn't really helped as much. And uveal melanoma is one of those indications where we would all like to see uh, immunotherapy perform uh, much better. And I think to achieve that, we have to lend some thought to specifically uh, what is driving immunotherapy failure in these patients. Uh, and there are two specific problems that we're focused on with the PERIO-1 study, and that's what I'm going to spend some time discussing with you. And so as a company, uh, we're focused uh, nearly exclusively on two organs, the liver and the pancreas, and uveal melanoma is the first indication uh, that we are studying within the liver. And the reason why we're so focused on these two organs is that there are common problems, common denominators that are limiting immunotherapy success based on the immune systems within these organs and based on how drugs are taken up or delivered into these sites. 
And so these are the two problems that I mentioned. We're focused on immunosuppression, uh, which is when cancer shuts the immune system off and renders patients less likely or unable to respond to, dr respond to drugs like checkpoint inhibitors. And we think this happens uh, very specifically or in a very specific way uh, within the liver, uh, particularly in patients with uveal melanoma, liver metastases. And the second problem uh, is intratumoral pressure. Uh, tumors within the liver and solid tumors in general tend to have very high pressures so that when drugs are given systemically through an IV or through a port or even directly into the liver, uh, if we don't generate enough delivery pressure to overcome that barrier, it might be very challenging for drugs to achieve the concentrations that we would like to have the desired effect. So that's the second problem uh, we're hoping to overcome. And the PERIO-1 study brings together what we hope will be two solutions uh, for these two problems. And so we bring together these two solutions into what we consider to be a therapeutic platform uh, because they work well together. Uh, we hope across multiple indications, starting with uveal melanoma liver metastases. Uh, the drug that we're studying in PERIO-1 is called SD-101. It's a toll-like receptor 9 agonist, which means uh, that this drug binds to a protein that's present on many of our immune cells, uh, and it stimulates them or activates them uh, to adopt an inflammatory posture uh, and be more able uh, to fight cancer cells. Uh, it leads to things like T cells coming into the tumor, T cells becoming more activated, and having more activated T cells inside of tumors uh, is what we'd like to see for checkpoint inhibitors to work better. Uh, because checkpoint inhibitors are actually targeting the T cells and not the cancer cells directly. And there's a specific cell type that we think is very problematic in liver tumors called MDSCs or myeloid-derived suppressor cells. And this cell type, we believe, uh, is a big part of why patients with liver tumors in general and patients with uveal melanoma liver metastases aren't able to respond to checkpoint inhibitors. And we believe that SD-101 uh, is able to attack that cell type and eliminate it. And we're combining the drug with a delivery technology. Uh, this is a delivery technology or device that's FDA cleared. Uh, it's currently being used in the United States for standard of care therapies, uh, but we brought it into the PERIO-1 study because we believe it could enable uh, more effective and perhaps safer delivery of SD-101 directly into liver tumors by overcoming this intratumoral pressure barrier. And our hope is that by doing so, we'll improve delivery of the drug, improve response rates, and thereby enabling patients to have better clinical outcomes. And by giving the drug directly into the liver and minimizing the exposure of uninvolved organs to the drug, uh, hopefully we'll also be able to do this safely and minimize any toxicities that might otherwise occur. And so the uniqueness of the immune system in the liver has been very well studied. Uh, in some ways, we want our immune systems in the liver to be suppressed or quiescent because everything that we eat uh, passes through the liver. And we have a lot of bacteria in our guts, in our colon, in our small intestines, and we don't want to develop hyperactive immune responses to these things every day. So the immune system in the liver, if you will, is designed uh, to be somewhat suppressive, but when cancer cells are present in the liver, they hijack this and take advantage of it and limit the ability of patients to respond to the tumors or cancers on their own and limit their ability to benefit from immunotherapeutic treatments. And we've studied many different cell types in the liver uh, and the theme that emerges is fairly constant that the immune system in the liver uh, is suppressed as I mentioned, and this is very problematic for cancer patients because tumor cells uh, as I said, can co-opt this and take advantage of it and make it very difficult for patients to do well with immunotherapy. And this one cell type that I mentioned that we think is very problematic in the liver uh, that we hope and believe SD-101 can effectively target, the myeloid-derived suppressor cell, has been very well studied over the years. Um, starting in the early 90s, uh, the biology of this cell type uh, began to become elucidated. The mechanisms by which this cell type shuts down T cells uh, better understood. And more recently, we're beginning to develop an appreciation of how this cell type may function uniquely in the liver and an understanding that we may need to target it differently uh, based on the fact that we're focused on tumors within the liver and not other organs, 
uh, where the cell type may in fact behave differently. And one thing that we've learned uh, from the checkpoint experience in other diseases, and Dr. Carvajal mentioned this, is that when patients have tumors in the liver, uh, they tend to behave differently. And these patients actually tend to do worse with checkpoint inhibitors uh, compared to patients who don't have tumors in the liver. So this study from Nature Medicine looked at patients with cutaneous melanoma, kidney cancer, and other diseases, and they compared patients with and without liver tumors. And again, the patients who had liver tumors, same diseases, just the location of the tumor differed. These patients did more poorly. They weren't able to respond to checkpoint inhibitors as reliably or as robustly as patients without liver tumors. So there's something about tumors being in the liver that's driving the immune system to be less active against the cancer and is limiting the ability of patients to respond to drugs like checkpoint inhibitors. And that's why the PERIO-1 study is so focused on driving the drug SD-101 into the liver and hopefully leveraging the mechanism of action of the drug, which we think can stimulate the immune system uh, in the liver effectively. And we hope eliminate that cell type, the MDSC, that, that is contributing to failure of immunotherapy in these patients. And SD-101, uh, like other TLR agonists or other drugs in this class, is able to stimulate multiple cell types, which we think is another attractive feature of the drug. Because when you think about immunosuppression in the liver and why checkpoint inhibitors aren't working well, it's a very complicated problem. And it might be challenging if we just go after one specific pathway or one molecule. So the ability of this drug and drugs like it to target multiple cell types, uh, we think is an advantage uh, when trying to enable immunotherapy in the liver. And this drug uh, as a class C TLR9 agonist uh, has properties that enable it to target myeloid-derived suppressor cells uh, which I mentioned we think can be very helpful uh, for patients with tumors inside of their livers. And when we studied uh, SD-101 uh, and compounds very similar to SD-101, other class C TLR9 agonists, what we found is that when we treated a healthy uh, patient MDSC uh, in vitro or in a test tube uh, with the drug, we can eliminate the cell type and cause these cells to die or become reprogrammed into more favorable immune cells. Uh, and in a murine or mouse model of liver tumors, we found that when we delivered the drug uh, in the blood, into the blood vessel feeding the liver using the pressure-enabled approach or the high-pressure approach, which we're gonna be using or are using in patients, uh, we found that we could effectively eliminate the cell type uh, and allow the animals to respond more favorably to liver tumors. And that's what we're showing you on this slide is that when we treated the animals uh, with a combination of the regionally delivered TLR9 agonist, so giving it directly into the blood vessel, feeding the liver under high pressure, and combined it with the systemic checkpoint inhibitor, we got a much better tumor response within the liver. And that's the black line here showing you the lowest level of tumor growth compared to the other lines. Red is just checkpoint inhibitor, and purple is just a TLR9 agonist. So if thinking about how we can apply this to our trial, uh, in the trial, uh, the black line is the combination uh, that the patients are getting, the regional TLR9 agonists with systemic checkpoint inhibitor. And the red line is what patients are getting today uh, in the clinic, which is just the systemic checkpoint inhibitor. So we hope by giving SD-101 directly into the liver, uh, we can change the immune environment, cause more T cells to be present, eliminate myeloid-derived suppressor cells, and thereby create a situation where checkpoint inhibitors have a much higher likelihood of working in patients with uveal melanoma liver metastases. So I'll summarize on this slide. So barriers to effective immunotherapy in the liver. Uh, while immunotherapy has achieved some wonderful things and in other indications, uh, the results as we've discussed have not been what we'd like them to be in the uveal melanoma population. And we believe by targeting these two specific problems, immunosuppression in the liver, uh, focusing on myeloid suppressor cells, and the delivery barriers that I mentioned, uh, we think that we can enable uh, patients with uveal melanoma metastases to have a higher likelihood of response to systemic checkpoint inhibitors, and that we hope that this platform not only benefits this population, uh, but other patient populations with tumors inside of their livers and the pancreas as well. So thank you for your attention, and I will stop here and turn it over to Dr. Weintraub. 
Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, uh, Dr. Katz and Dr. Carvajal. It's always a little challenging to go uh, third. And uh, I'd like to start by a little bit reviewing some of the uh, information that they've talked and how that leads into our treatment options for these patients. Here are my disclosures. So when we take into account what Dr. Carvajal and Dr. Katz talk about, really the goals of cancer immuno embolization immunotherapy is to make the host immune system um, really identify cancer cells as being foreign and target these cells for destruction. The challenge is that these cancer cells aren't foreign and the response is really tightly controlled by the body. When you look at the liver, uh, it's really a difficult area to treat as we've discussed already. Um, the challenge is really twofold. One is that the liver contains more than 70% of all tissue macrophages. It's really one of the most anagenic organs we have in the entire body. And it really has this innate immune cell population within it. And how do we address that population? Despite the abundance of cells, as Dr. Katz was saying, the liver tends to induce much more tolerance than immunity, really because of the unnecessary need to activate the immune system in an organ which is continuously exposed to food-derived antigens, probiotics from the GI tract, and we really want to prevent damage to the hepatocytes. And so this is really that conundrum that we look at when we go to treat patients who have liver uh, disease from ocular melanoma. Um, when we look at the SD101 that we started to talking about, we're really looking at trying to enable the immune response in the liver. It's a synthetic agonist that really stimulates the cells to release interferon and mature into um, APC cells, really to activate the T cell anti-immune response. And the question is, how do we get it there? So some of the initial studies, and we're looking here at some of the initial studies looking at SD101 being studied in over 100 patients. And we see that when we give SD101, it increases the total in cytotoxic cell tumor infiltrates. It induces uh, interferon uh, gamma uh, gene cell expression and increases responsiveness to checkpoint inhibitors. So it really does all the things we need it to do to get the drugs to work better. Um, when we look at the response rates here, it's being given uh, interlesionally. So the first part was how to get the drug into the tumors. And so that was injected directly into tumors. So these were patients who had lesions that we could inject with the needle, percutaneously put a needle into the tumor, get very high doses of SD-101 into the tumors, and then intravenously giving a, a PD-L1 inhibitor, Prembo, into the patient systemically. And what we're able to see here in the ECHO study, this was just using a systemic PD-L1 inhibitor, we had about a 32% uh, response from the tumors themselves. By adding SD-101, really ramping up the ability of the drugs to work, we went from a 32% response to close to a 79% response, just with the addition of that injection into the tumor. And here you can see the response rate in terms of tumor shrinkage in the vast majority of patients. So how does this take us to patients who have advanced disease. One of the questions that we always have is, is this safe? And when we looked at multiple studies across over 400 patients, the adverse effects of the SD-101 in addition to the PD-L1 inhibitors is extraordinarily low. Like any type of drug, we get a lot of low grade three, four effects. And the events you can see here occur up into 30% of patients. We can talk a little bit more about that when we get into the study itself. However, the serious adverse events, the uh, IR adverse events, treatment-related adverse events are running in about the 4 to 10% range, what we would expect, and treatment-related deaths in this study were essentially none. So how do we get the drug there? The initial thoughts were inject the drug directly into the liver itself. You get a very high dose of SD-101 in the liver and affects the tumor. The challenge with that as Dr. Katz was showing, on the initial side within a needle injection, you really get it localized to one part of the, the tumor. You don't get it to spread to the entire uh, liver itself, to the tumors within the liver itself. 
by using the TriNav system and pressure-induced uh, delivery of the drug, the liver is unique. The liver has two blood supplies to it. And it's really one of the only two organs in the entire body that can regenerate. The liver and your skin are the only two organs in the body that can regenerate. As I was saying, it has two blood supplies. It has a portal vein, and that portal vein supplies about 75% of the blood to the liver and a hepatic artery. That hepatic artery supplies the remaining 25% of blood to the liver. We take advantage of the fact that tumors within the liver like oxygen-rich, nutrient-rich blood. So because of that, the metastatic um, ocular melanoma within the liver, uveal melanoma in the liver, gets about 95% of its blood supply from that hepatic artery. What that is, allows us to do is to catheterize the hepatic artery, similar to how a cardiologist might come through your leg and go to the blood vessels that supply the heart. I'm able to come through a blood vessel and get out to the blood vessels that supply the liver. And once we're there, we're able to do, uh, deliver very high doses of SD-101 directly into the liver and really into the tumors in the liver while sparing the background liver. And so as you see here with the TriNab device, we're able to get very high volumes within the liver and very high concentrations of the drug in the liver itself. So pressure-enabled drug delivery allows us to come through an artery in the leg, trace all the way out to the artery in the liver. And this is really a standard technique that we use for many of the therapies that we give. This allows us to really provide very high doses of the drug. But then the key to this, to really overcome the differential that we're seeing uh, in blood flow into the liver, is to do the pressure delivery, really to induce the drug to get out of the vessels and to get into that background substrate of the liver itself. Uh, the way it's performed is really sort of a traditional arteriogram. We come through a small puncture in the leg. Occasionally, we need to go through the arm. We trace out to the blood vessels in the liver. And the patients, this is all done under conscious sedation. You're very comfortable through the procedure. We often have you hold your breath as we're doing it. And the procedure is not that long. The entire procedure takes about an hour to an hour and a half. When we get out to the liver, what we're able to do is inject the blood vessels supplying the tumors. So here you can see with a standard catheter, when I inject the blood vessels, I see the blood supply to the liver itself. And here you can see the tumors faintly lightening up because they get that rich oxygen blood going into them. With the aid of the trisalis device, I'm really able to pressurize this delivery into the liver. And here you can see on the arteriogram, increased flow in each of these tumors really staining them well. And similar on the CT, here you can see a, a CT study done after the delivery with very little flow into the tumor here or the tumor in this portion of the liver. But with the use of a pressure-enabled delivery, we can really force that into the tissue around the tumors themselves. So we are now entering into the cohort B phase of the uh, PERI-01 study. The cord A stage uh, was really looking at the safety of this in terms of the tumor uh, mi microenvironment. And that's really the key to a lot of the success that we're talking about for treatment of the liver. Really reprogramming the tumor microenvironment um, to allow the PD-L1s, um, the CTLA-4 medications, the PEMBRO, the IPI to be effective. We're now moving into the uh, cohort B stage of combining the SD-101 with PEMBRO, and we'll hopefully soon be moving into the cohort C stage, where we be combining both the SD-101 with a PDL4 inhibitor and a CTLA4 uh, inhibitor as we go forward. With that, I'm going to ask Ashley Moody to take over to tell us a little bit more about the inclusion criteria for the study, where we are now, and where we're going to be heading shortly. Thank you, Dr. Weintraub, and thank you everyone for joining today. Uh, I will be talking to you about eligibility criteria associated with this trial, and I'll also provide a high-level overview of the different procedures that are performed throughout the course of the trial. So for eligibility, we are enrolling adult patients with stage 4 uveal melanoma with liver-dominant or liver-only disease. 
So this isn't to say that patients can't have disease outside of the liver, but it's important that the greatest fraction of disease is located within the liver relative to other organs. Treatment with prior checkpoint inhibitors is allowed as long as there's a 21 day washout between the period of the last dose and initiation of screening for this trial. Uh, we are looking for patients with a good performance status. So we'll ask questions that allow us to understand how you're able to perform day-to-day -day activities um, and, and what your functional status is. And then we'll be looking to ensure that you have adequate organ function, which we can determine by drawing different types of blood work and by um, obtaining imaging such as MRI or CT scans in order to assess your organ function. And then this provides a high-level overview of the patient experience uh, once enrolled in the clinical trial. So the SD-101, as everyone has mentioned, is delivered in the interventional radiology suite, and it is a standard outpatient procedure. But for safety, the clinical trial does require one overnight admission uh, following the initial infusion just to make sure that patients tolerate both the drug and the infusion safely. Um, and as long as this first infusion goes well, each of these subsequent infusions are performed on an outpatient basis. There are a total of six weekly SD-101 uh, treatment infusions that take uh, place over the course of the trial. And this happens over the course of two cycles and there's a one month break between cycles one and two. We do have liver biopsies that are performed throughout the course of the trial, one before cycle one and one before cycle two, which ends up occurring just before the first and the fourth infusions. Uh, checkpoint inhibitors, depending on the cohort in which the patient's enrolled, are delivered uh, per standard of care through a vein in your arm on a day separate from the SD-101 infusion procedure. And we have treated patients in both the two and four milligram dose levels thus far. And um, we've seen encouraging safety data and no adverse events associated with either the drug or the infusion procedure itself. The checkpoint cohort, so cohort B that Dr. Weintraub alluded to, where we'll be administering the SD-101 in addition to the nivolumab, uh, is scheduled to begin sometime later this month or in May. And we're really looking forward uh, to enrolling patients into that cohort. And then also Tricellus is providing logistical and financial support for patients um, who would require that if they need to travel greater than 40 miles to the study site in order to gain access uh, to this clinical trial. So these are just you know, a high level overview of the different eligibility criteria and the procedures that are associated with this clinical trial. And I would like to open it up now for Q&A uh, for any more specific questions that anyone in the audience may have. Ashley, if I could make a couple of comments regarding the patient experience while we're waiting for questions to come through. Uh, you know, as Ashley was saying, this is done in the interventional radiology suite. These are done under conscious sedation. So you're awake and you're able to respond to, to us, but we usually use two medications, Versed and fentanyl to keep you very comfortable throughout the uh, entire procedure. Uh, in addition, to try to minimize the amount of time that you need to spend in the hospital. The liver biopsies are in fact performed at the same time as that initial treatment and during the fourth infusion. So it doesn't require a separate visit to the hospital. One of the things that we've noted when we do transarterial uh, work, whether it's a yttrium 90, I know one of the questions was asking about yttrium 90 or transarterial chemoembolization, or uh, immunoembolizations is there's a very high first pass of the medications. Meaning that when we inject it into the artery, the liver is taking up most of that medication. So fortunately we see much fewer systemic side effects than you see from the conventional uh, immunotherapies that are given through a vein where it really affects your whole body. Here the drugs are really concentrated into the liver themselves. Awesome. Thank you everyone for being on. Thank you, uh, Dr. Weintraub, Dr. Carvajal and Dr. Katz and Ashley for just for clarifying kind of what's going on, what the research helps us like understand about the liver and the treatment of the liver. Um, we do have quite a few questions that have come in and just, just like Ashley said, we do want to open it up now for Q and a to these three experts so that you can hear from them. Um, just a quick disclaimer, just to remember, they cannot offer direct um, individualized medical advice over this presentation. Um, we obviously as patients, like we want to ask questions and we have so many questions that sometimes can be very personal, but just keep in mind that the doctors can answer very generalized questions. Um, they cannot offer direct medical advice. Um, that in mind, we do have a couple questions that I'm going to go ahead and start going through, and then we'll pull some up from the Q and a, uh, so how soon after being evaluated for the Perio one clinical trial, will I know if I'm qualified, qualified to participate and how soon can I start? So who would like to take that question? I can take that question. Uh, so screening procedures can be performed over the course of a couple of days. And once you're deemed to be eligible, um, you could 
technically receive the infusion within a few days later. We typically perform these infusions on a Monday or a Tuesday, but there's not a long wait between being enrolled and being deemed eligible and receiving the infusion itself. So less than a week. Okay, that's awesome. Um, question number two is, does the stipend to participate in the Perio one study include air travel and anything else? It does, yes. Uh, for patients who need to travel to the site for treatment, it includes air travel, hotel. Um, if you just need to drive, it can inc include gas mileage. Um, it just depends on the patient's unique circumstance and uh, we'll work that out on a patient per patient basis. Okay, so this kind of goes along with that question or just is in uh, very you know, related, but, um, the, one of the questions that came in is where is the Perio one trial currently administered? Is it only at the Columbia location? A very good question. No, it's at Columbia, but it's also live at MD Anderson in Texas as well. Um, Jefferson and the university of Pittsburgh medical center. And we have a couple of more sites coming online within the next few weeks, uh, with an additional four coming on after that. So, uh, these sites are located across the nation. Um, we've, we've covered both coasts, middle of the country, so uh, there are options. And as you can see at the bottom of this slide here, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, um, we do list the different trials that are uh, the sites that are hosting the trial. And also we have a website on our Trisalis um, homepage with more information. Awesome. I love that. So we do have just a question um, confirming the number of treatments. Um, so how many treatments total happen during the treatment process? And is it an ongoing, um, ongoing treatment? Meaning like after you finish one phase, do you like do it again? Um, just, or does it depend on the patient and how they respond? Sure. Another very good question. Uh, there are a total of six SD 101 infusion procedures that take place over the course of two cycles. So you receive the first three infusions during cycle one at a weekly basis, and then you take one month off. And then the second three infusions are performed during the second cycle, also at a weekly basis. Uh, that's for patients in cohort A who are just receiving SD-101 therapy. Um, for those patients, treatment stops after the sixth SD-101 uh, infusion. However, for patients enrolled in the cohorts that are also receiving checkpoint inhibitors, they'll continue to receive nivolumab up to one year uh, following the final SD-101 infusion procedure. Okay. That is helpful. Um, let's see, where is this next question? What if I start the trial at one of the Perio one sites and then I move, move closer to a different site that becomes available? Can I then switch sites for administration? Yes, yeah, that would be an option. We would just need to review, um, you know, of course, all of the safety and make sure there's a great PI handoff, but there's no reason that we couldn't work out those logistics. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, let's see, number four question that came in, I guess, well, we might be on question number six. I don't even know anymore, but um, can I contact one of the Perio one sites myself to get the ball rolling or do I have to go through one of my physicians and have a referral? Oh, absolutely. It's encouraged. You can feel free to reach out to the site directly for more information. Okay. That's good to know. Um, all for advocating for ourselves as patients, right? Uh, let's see from Christian Noko regarding the, uh, regarding the PDL one inhibitor. If a patient has a positive expression to PDL one, does that mean that immunotherapy may work better? I'll defer to Dr. Carvajal or Dr. Katz. Yeah. In general, there's an association with higher expression of that PDL one protein in response to therapy. Um, you know, I can say for, for melanoma, we, we don't use that for a treatment criteria, um, but, um, you know, we, we, do, we do like to see higher levels, um, but, but unfortunately for this, it's not an absolute marker. You know, even if you have high expression, it doesn't mean that treatment will work. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And the other thing that we tend to think about is when we look at pdl one expression levels as an indicator of response, uh, typically, we're looking at tumor cell or tumor expression of it, and other cell types like MDSC and other immune cells can express PDL1. So when those cells express it, that may also enable patients to respond to drugs like nivolumab. Um, and so that's something else to keep in mind. So just looking at it in the tumor may not tell the entire story. Okay. And that was kind of like, I think it was, I think it was you, Dr. Katz, who mentioned that in some cases you were saying that after after doing the, uh, the perio trial that they were showing better response rate to other immunotherapies. Is that kind of what I heard correctly? Yeah, that was, I think that that's referring to a previous study that was done okay. by a company called Dynavax who owned SD-101 uh, before Trisalis acquired it. And they were looking at SD-101 plus checkpoint inhibitor and cutaneous melanoma. 
And as Dr. Weintraub reviewed, that study showed that it was safe and well-tolerated. So the combination uh, did not result in any significant increase in toxicities over checkpoint alone. And that's when the response rate was 79% compared to the historical level uh, in the 30s. And so that's what we're hoping to see in okay. PERIA-1 by delivering SD-101 uh, in this way. And we don't have any data with checkpoint yet, uh, but in the first few patients, you know, we can say that the SD-101 has been very well tolerated, uh, being given directly into the liver. And when we look at the biopsies, we're starting to see those immune changes uh, that we were hoping for uh, that, that should and could enable checkpoint responsiveness. Uh, but we haven't treated any patients with that combination yet. And as Ashley mentioned, that's coming up soon. Uh, we have a question from John, and he asks, what was the criteria to include the other drugs used in the trial in addition to the SD-101? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. I mean, you know, some of the challenges are <laughs> when we think about these combinatorial strategies, right, what are the best partners? You know, that's, that's one thing you need to try to determine. And then you know, of those potential options, which can we clinically get, which is available, you know, so a lot of, you know, there's a scientific question and then the practicalities of it. Um, in, in this case, we have data that we think SD-101 can enhance the activity of clinically available checkpoint inhibition, you know, PD-1, CTLA-4, um, and, um, you know, PD-1, CTLA-4 is commonly used to treat uvula melanoma outside of trials. And so for those, for those reasons, we felt that this was, you know, you know, a, a very promising approach and one that we could, we could test very early on. Yeah, and looking okay. at it from a slightly different perspective, and I agree with all of that, uh, when we were deciding how to design this study, you know, our fundamental goal was to boost the response rate to checkpoint inhibitors in uveal melanoma patients with liver metastases. And so we took a very careful look at what the problems were, what were the actual barriers or the critical barriers limiting success, as I mentioned at the beginning of my section. And when we looked at the tumors, it's really that these tumors are considered what we call cold tumors, that they don't have a lot of activated immune cells, not a lot of mutations. And so, you know, is there a type of drug that can reverse this or improve this to stimulate the immune system, get activated immune cells to enter the tumor, thereby enabling checkpoint inhibitors to work better. So that's why we picked SD-101. And then the delivery technology we hope will solve uh, the needle injection limitation that Dr. Weintraub described. So it, it was really just defining the problem and picking things that we thought had a reasonable chance of solving or addressing those two problems. Okay, so I think this kind of goes along with what you were just talking about, Dr. Katz, but um, it's kind of more of a, I guess, a confirmation question. So in other words, this treatment is, is it trying to teach the liver to do something that it should already be doing? Or are we trying to teach the liver to do something it doesn't normally do? <laughs> uh, yes, maybe. Um, I think it, it depends on how you look at it. I think, I think the easiest perspective to take is that um, as Dr. Weintraub and I mentioned earlier, the liver at baseline is suppressive or tolerant. So it doesn't respond robustly to stimuli like cancer cells. And then when cancer cells are present in the liver, they make that worse. They turn the immune system off even more. So I think the way I think about it is we're trying to treat a dysfunctional immune system in the liver. We're trying to correct uh, what's wrong with the immune cells inside of these tumors so that they can then respond to checkpoint inhibitors. Okay. I, would, I would echo that. I mean, a lot of this is trying to change the tumor microenvironment that it's involved in in the liver. And that's why a single drug solution isn't going to work. You know, we're changing the environment a lot with the SD-101, then really allowing the drugs which we have seen to be partially effective become much more effective in that microenvironment. That's clearly the goal here. Yeah, okay. And I think Another, another point to make is getting back to something Dr. Carvajal said is that we're really focused on the organ. Uh, you know, we've studied very deeply what we think is wrong with the immune system inside of these tumors in the liver specifically. And we think and hope that SD-101 is well-suited to correct the problem that exists in the liver specifically. Okay, so this question from Linda says, do we know if the liver in non-cancer patients would normally be able to kill off uveal melanoma cells by itself? 
and the liver in the, in patients with uveal melanoma essentially just have a liver that isn't working as expected, or would, would you say that the livers of all people universally would struggle to kill off uveal melanoma cells simply because of the function of the liver and the nature of the uveal melanoma? I, I don't think that's an either or. I think it, it may be both. You know, mm-hmm. the, the liver I was going to say, I feel like it would be both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the liver itself is inherently immunosuppressive. Yeah. Right? The immune system in uh, folks without cancer, you know, the, the immune system just doesn't function well there. And that's by design. Um, but I think more and more we're learning that um, cancer itself can affect the way the immune system functions, the way certain organs like the liver function. And so, so I think it's both. This is a little bit of a fast question, I hope, but is there a weight criteria for patients? I think this would be for you, Ashley. Nothing specifically noted in the protocol, no. Okay, wonderful. Thing, the only thing from an angiographic standpoint is the weight limit on our tables is 450 pounds. Okay, so will there be any sites open on the East Coast? I think this answer has already been, it's already been given. Um, East Coast, we've got the... Thomas Jefferson University area. And then uh, was there one in Florida or no? Jefferson. Um, and Jefferson. In, yep. And also University of Pittsburgh. Okay. And uh, of course, Columbia. And then we'll be opening actually an MGH soon as well. All right. And then we have another question. Is prior treatment with Y90 allowed? It is, it is allowed. Uh, the one thing that we check is to make sure that blood flow Uh, to the areas where the tumors are located is preserved. And that's usually the case in patients who get Y90. So as long as we can confirm that blood flow has not been interrupted from the Y90 beads, then the patients can participate. Okay, and where on the West Coast, sorry to bounce back, but this this attendee says that her question was actually not for the East Coast, it was for the West Coast. (laughs) Where on the West Coast can you remind them where they can uh, find the treatment sites? UCLA, um, they're not open yet, but they will be. Stanford will be open quite soon. California, uh, Seattle, Washington, UWASH. Um, those are those are the three that we're looking at right now. Okay, wonderful. Uh, let's see. I think there's one here at the top. What kinds of tests should be done for a change in tumor microenvironment? Would another biopsy be needed? So in, within the trial, uh, there are three three biopsy sessions. As Dr. Weintraub mentioned, there's one right before the first infusion then one right before the fourth infusion, and then there's one a few weeks after cycle two. Uh, there's nothing else done in terms of you know, getting more information or trying to get a closer look at the tumor microenvironment. So it's, it's just those three time points uh, that we sample the tumors within the trial. It's not something that's done in routine clinical care, uh, but within the trial, that's when we do those procedures. Okay, so procedurally, um, how many days after the liver-directed therapy is the infusion of the PDL one and the CTLA-4? They take place concurrently, uh, plus or minus one day of the SD-101 infusion procedure uh, during okay. cohort B, where it's just nivolumab, it's every four weeks. All right. Uh, liver biopsy, is that required for continued enrollment? No, it isn't. It's not. Okay. So this is, I guess, maybe more of a my own question. Um, I'm assuming to have the treatment, you have to have the biopsy. You said it's done concurrently at the time of the the beginning of the treatments. Um, That biopsy is to confirm the presence of uveal melanoma as the actual tumor cells, correct? Well, typically typically that's known coming into the trial. So the purpose of the biopsy, um, it's, it's to get information about drug delivery, to get information about how the drug's affecting immune cells uh, inside of the tumor, and also to get some information about response, because imaging can be a little bit challenging at times, particularly in the short term. And so the baseline biopsy is to understand what things look like before treatment, and then the second and third sessions are to understand what happens after cycle one and then cycle two. Okay, yes, that makes sense. Um, and just something to highlight is, is we, you know, for any of these clinical trials, uh, it is, we know it's, it's, it's a lot to ask from patients. You know, we do these trials because we believe um, that these treatments may help, right, fight the cancer. Um, but we also need to figure out, you know, what's the likelihood of these treatments working, right? Like, are, are the treatments doing what we expect it to do? Um, and so that's why we ask, you know, people enrolling in the trial to, to, to do these, these biopsies. You know, are we changing that microenvironment? What are we doing to the tumor? The only way to answer that is with the biopsies. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'm assuming that if someone has been previously treated with any other treatments and they have had a biopsy done for those treatments, they would need a new biopsy going into this trial. Okay. Um, from John, if two cycles of treatment are completed, what will determine what happens next? Is that just, again, back to the biopsy and how you're responding? It just depends on, sorry, go ahead. It depends on the cohort in which the patient enrolls. So if they're in the monotherapy cohort, cohort A, that's the end of treatment just by trial design. Um, but if they're in cohorts B or C where checkpoints are administered, then checkpoints continue after the second cycle. Um, so we have a question about enrolling in cohorts. Do they get to pick which cohort or are they um, randomly assigned a cohort? It's sequential. It's sequential. So to pick. Okay. So it's basically if you're person A, person B, person C, person A would go to cohort A, person B would go to cohort B, and person C would go to cohort C. And then you would start the pattern over? It just uh, depends. They, they open sequentially. Okay. And so for example, cohort A is open now. Um, when cohort B opens officially, that'll be the only cohort open. And so patients, whoever enrolls during that period of time will go into cohort B. Okay, gotcha. And then when we complete B, we open C and so on. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so perspective, right? Because we want to make sure the SD101 by itself is safe. And then we'll add the nivolumab to that, make sure that's safe, and then do the combination of immunotherapy with SD101. Um, back to our weight question. The question was and is for those who are unable to go to gain weight and are deemed underweight. So I guess their concern is like basically for the toxicity and for the concern of like maintaining, maintaining their overall health if they have already had weight deterioration due to cancer treatment and the cancer, you know, already working its damage. So it's, it's really more about overall um, performance status or just general health status. So irrespective of the weight, if a patient uh, is in good shape and meets all the enrollment criteria and the performance status is above a certain threshold, uh, then, and the physician feels it'll be safe for the patient to enroll, uh, then the patient can enroll even if there's been weight loss or, or the weight is low. Okay, so those eligibility criteria are evaluated on an individual basis. Okay, uh, let's see. Since it's, per, since it's delivered, this, um, this delivery system is delivered with high pressure, does it really hurt <laughs> is a question that just came in. Uh, patient, patients are very comfortable. The patient doesn't even notice. You don't really sense pain within your liver. You know, we're well within the parenchyma of the liver. So when we uh, elevate the pressure of the infusion, there's no, uh, no systemic feeling for the patient themselves. Okay. This question um, is about, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to mention quickly that the device that we're using in the study, as I mentioned, it's FDA cleared. It's actually been used in over 15,000 cases uh, with, a, with an excellent safety profile. So even though uh, it is augmenting uh, the pressure of delivery, it's not done in a dangerous way. There haven't been any uh, significant incidences of vascular or vessel injury or trauma. So we know that the device um, can be used very safely in patients and in livers. Okay. Um, is ongoing, I guess this is for you, Ashley, is ongoing imaging, so the MRIs that follow to evaluate um, the effectiveness of treatment, is the ongoing imaging covered by the trial as well, or is it only the initial treatments as well as the travel? Yes, so a couple of the imaging procedures take place at the frequency that you would normally have them in clinical practice, so those would be uh, submitted to insurance, but anything that takes place more frequently than would uh, standardly be performed, the trial will cover. Okay, so basically um, it will be covered if it's in excess from what standard procedure requires. Yes. Uh, okay, I am looking to see if I missed any major questions. Uh, as far as the newer locations coming up, upcoming locations, is Denver one of those lists? Um, yes, okay, Denver is one of those lists, uh, one of those in the list. Um, do you have to lay flat for six hours after treatment? The, the vast majority of cases, assuming the anatomy is fine, we use a vascular closure device. And so you're up and ambulating in one, uh, one hour to 90 minutes. Okay. Uh, what's the estimated size for the planned cohorts? I guess, number of patients. Sure. So in, uh, we've enrolled seven patients to date uh, in cohorts B and C, anywhere from three to uh, six to 12 patients, depending on how patients uh, tolerate the treatment. And then in the phase 1B portion, up to 40 patients. Okay. All right, um, I am not seeing any other questions. Do you guys have anything else that you guys wanted to share to wrap up? Yeah, I just wanna thank Kieran Sight again um, and the Ocular Melanoma Foundation for allowing this to happen. I hope it's been informative for the patients. And you know, as Dr. Carvajal mentioned, 
we recognize uh, what an effort and undertaking it is for patients to participate in these studies. So I wanna thank all of you that, that have taken part in clinical trials or are considering it going forward. Oh, I think this was wonderful. And thank you all of you to being here and for participating, for being part of the planning process for the last month. Like it's been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences and produced by Agora Media. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.